Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. So, Ben, another aspect of health that you talk about in great detail. You wrote an incredible blog post on this, right? And check this out: Ben Greenfield on sleep. Google that; you'll find his blog post. By far the most detailed. Post I've seen on the science of sleep for well-being. Let's talk about sleep. That article put you to sleep pretty quickly, by the way. As long as that's the trick, is you read the article and you go to sleep. Because speaking yeah. of cold, you even recommended to me certain temperatures right. to go to bed. At. Right. So sleep hacking is something that I find fascinating. I protect my sleep quite a bit. I track my sleep. I shoot for about 10% of my night spent in deep sleep. Deep sleep is a lot of where your memory formation occurs, a lot of neuronal repair and recovery occurs. It's not the only type of sleep that you want. In the lighter stages of sleep, for example, you get more muscle healing. You get more of a tending to of your musculoskeletal system and some of your other body's systems. But when it comes to your neural system, your brain, your neuromuscular system, staying cold, sleeping in a cool room, and maintaining a lower core temperature increases the percentage of deep sleep that you get dramatically. So, in addition to, for example, taking like a cold shower at some point towards the end of the day, it doesn't have to be right before bed. And as a matter of fact, right before bed, you get a little bit of a cortisol dump that can keep you up a little while. I'm not a fan of doing the cold shower right before bed. But you can keep your room, the ideal temperature for sleep. Does anybody know this? It's 64 to 66 degrees Fahrenheit. So when I walk into a hotel room, the first thing I'll do I'll adjust the temperature to 64 to 66 degrees. That's roughly 18 degrees Celsius, 64 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exercise or physical activity. If you're doing it, let's say you're doing the 10x program, for example, you want to do it at some point during the day because it will enhance your deep sleep to move during the day. Again, it doesn't have to be a traditional gym session. It can just be, you know, burpees and pull-ups and walking kind of spread throughout the day. But you want to finish any exercise session that you do. Preferably at least three hours prior to when you want to go to bed, and the reason for that is because that gives your neuroendocrine system a chance to shut down some of the cortisol. It also gives your body temperature a chance to go back to normal. Sorry, Ben, you're saying the optimal time to exercise is three hours before you go to bed. Well, the optimal time to exercise. Varies, and I'll fill you in on that in just a second. But whatever you're doing for exercise, aside from that easy postprandial dinner time walk, that easy walk that you do after dinner, would be just making sure that you finish up any hard exercise at least three hours prior to when you're going to go to bed. So if you are going to go to the gym, you'd ideally like to be done at the gym. If you're going to go to bed at let's say 11 p.m., you'd want to be done with your gym session by eight and no later than that. Now, when it comes to exercise, if you are going to exercise. Timing of exercise, though, the ideal scenario is if you are going to exercise, your body has this natural rise in cortisol when you wake up, when light hits your eyes in the morning, and you get out of bed. Your body releases some hormones that naturally wake you up. One of those hormones is not coffee, by the way. You don't naturally have coffee floating through your bloodstream. As a matter of fact, I've done continuous blood glucose monitoring. And the single biggest variable that shoves my blood glucose up very high in the morning is, believe it or not, coffee. Because coffee causes this big release of cortisol that then causes your liver to dump a bunch of sugar into your system. That's not a bad thing necessarily. I'm all about better living through science and using some of these wonderful herbs and plants that we have all around us in nature to enhance our life. And I would classify coffee as one of those. But if you do have adrenal issues, it's profound how much extra cortisol coffee kind of. 
dumps into your system. But the idea is that because you have so much natural cortisol released into your system when you wake, the best type of exercise to do in the morning is something that I call easing into your day, something restoring, something relaxing, something that might even pair well with a meditative or a prayer practice at the beginning of the day. For me, that's usually something like a nice walk in the sunshine, or sometimes I'll go down and do some yoga moves in the sauna and finish those up with a cold shower. Yoga in and of itself is great. An easy swim, maybe a simple bike ride through a park, something that's just very simple and relaxing and restorative, maybe allows you to focus on your day, allows you to think about what you want to accomplish that day, make your affirmations, engage in deep breathing. These are the type of things that the body is very receptive to in the morning that can enhance your deep sleep later on in the evening. Now, between about 4 and 7 p.m., your body temperature peaks, your reaction time peaks, your grip strength peaks, your ability to be able to build new muscle after workout peaks. So if you're going to do a hard exercise session, again, It's not necessary to get a nice body. It's not necessary to live a long time. But I understand that sometimes it feels good. Sometimes you're competing in an event. Sometimes maybe you want a little bit of extra muscle because you like the way you look with that extra muscle. You like the way your jeans fit. You like the way you fit in a t-shirt, etc. There's a lot of reasons that it's okay to build a little bit of extra muscle or to do that hard exercise session. But if you do it between about 4 and 7 p.m. is the ideal time to do that hard exercise session with the cool thing being that you're getting that hard thing in before dinner. So if dinner for you is a very social event, if you, like me, have big family dinners where you're having red wine and dark chocolate and sourdough bread and sweet potato fries and a lot more of kind of the rich carbohydrate-dense foods, your body's very primed to be able to deal with that blood glucose. So I know it's kind of a little bit of a rabbit hole when we're talking about the cold for sleep, but as far as the timing of the exercise, that's the scenario I use for myself and for most of the clients that I work with is we do the easy thing in the morning to ease ourselves into the day, and then as long as the schedule permits, the harder thing kind of towards the end of the day. One other thing for sleep that's quite fascinating, I'd be remiss not to throw some of these biohacks in there, would be I have a chili pad on my bed. Has anybody ever used a chili pad? It circulates cold water underneath your sheet while you sleep, and you can actually set it for whatever temperature that you would like, and you and your partner can actually set your own sleep temperature. So I set it at 55 degrees, meaning that the ambient air around me is about 64 to 66 while I'm sleeping, but then I've got this 55-degree cold water going underneath my body while I sleep, and that vastly enhances my deep sleep percentage as well. It all comes down to um, sleep just hygiene. Just do a translation. That's 13 degrees Celsius yes. for the rest of the world. This is like when I speak in Japan. I say something and I have to stop so that they can translate this into Japanese. Celsius to Fahrenheit, very similar. Anyways, though, the idea behind sleep hygiene, though, is you have cold and you're already a little bit more informed about cold. And then a few other necessary components of sleep hygiene that, of course, you know, how many in here are traveling? Right, and having to deal with the 3 a.m. sunrise and the jet lag and the light and the crazy fluctuations in temperature and everything else that can affect your sleep. Well, maintaining a cool temperature is one thing. Another is absence of artificial light, absence of blue light at night. And in that sleep article that Vishen referred to that you could find, if you just search for the last one I wrote, it might still be on the front page of my website. It was uh, about four weeks ago I wrote a really comprehensive sleep article. I talk about you know things that you can install on your computer to lower the amount of blue light that they produce. I even give a little hack for your phone where you can set it up so it only produces red light or grayscale light at night. You can also, of course, wear what I call birth control for your head, which would be these blue light blocking glasses, the very unattractive, slightly creepy blue light blocking glasses. You see a lot of 
biohackers wearing. They actually do work. They do a great job of making you sleep. As a matter of fact, if I try to watch a TV or a documentary or a movie at night and I have these on, I get sleepy because it blocks so much of the blue light from coming off the screen. But absence of artificial light in the evening is another necessary component of sleep, along with presence of lots of natural light during the day, being outdoors, taking that morning walk in the sunshine, etc. So we have light, we have a cool sleeping environment, and then we have silence or something to cover up the noise. Has anybody in here ever used binaural beats or white noise? These actually work really, really well, especially when you're in travel scenarios. Like I'm staying in an apartment down in Rotoman City, and it's close to the road. And so what I do is I have a little app called Sleepstream. And even though my phone is in airplane mode, it's beside my bed, and it's playing this white noise called Sleepstream. And I'll often even pair that with something called Sleep phones, which are soft headphones that allow you, if you're a side sleeper, to kind of play this in your ear and cover up noise. And this app that I use called Sleepstream is like a DJ for sleep. I'm not financially affiliated with them or Flower Checker or any of these other apps I'm talking about. I just like them. But this Sleepstream plays white noise and then also plays binaural beats. So you can kind of do both at the same time while you're trying to lull yourself to sleep. So anyways, those are the big three. It would be cold, the absence of artificial light, and then also trying to use noise or sound or else eliminate noises and sounds from around you while you're sleeping. So we've spoken about food. We've spoken about exercise. We've spoken about sleep. Now, Sarah Capacci asks, what are your thoughts on nutrigenomics, which is eating according to one's genetics? Ooh, can of worms, nutrigenomics. So the idea is that, and there's actually a great book about this called The Jungle Effect, The Jungle Effect by Dr. Daphne Miller. And the idea is that, you know, Dr. Miller, for example, will take her Hispanic patients in California and put them on a more traditional Mexican diet comprised of legumes and non-GMA corn and maize and, you know, beans and a lot of these natural foods that they would have been exposed to for hundreds of years or that their ancestors would have eaten rather than, you know, traditional, you know, Tex-Mex, GMO corn, you know, refried beans, canola oil, that type of thing, and see profound healing in her patients. And then she'll rinse, wash, and repeat, you know, put Northern European patients on, for example, a slightly higher salt diet with fermented foods and cured meats and natural wild-caught fish, and again, see profound changes in health. And it makes sense, right, logically. You look at what your ancestors would have eaten, which you can elucidate by talking to your grandparents or going off and doing a salivary genetic test, such as a you know, a 23andMe genetic test. You can look at and investigate what your ancestors would have eaten and try and simulate something close to that. Now, I understand that we live in an era in which we've got a lot of mutts like me. You know, I'm a little bit of Spanish, a little bit of Italian, a little bit of Australian. I'm all over the map. And so for me, rather than necessarily getting really confused about whether I shoot the Spanish diet or the Mediterranean diet or a Northern European diet or whatever, I take a little bit of a deeper dive and I look at my genetic factors that allow me to do certain things. Like for example, I've tested my genetics and it's shown that my body produces a lower level of what are called endogenous antioxidants than the average person. So I go out of my way to do things like supplement with glutathione and eat a lot of wild plants and flavanol and polyphenol rich dark fruits and vegetables and give my body a little step up in the antioxidant department. I also know that my body, unfortunately, metabolizes alcohol very poorly. So when I consume alcohol, I actually will do things 
like you know, take activated charcoal to soak up some of the acetaldehyde. I'll use supplements like SAMe and molybdenum and a few other supplements that allow me to be able to process alcohol a little bit better. I know that I carry the gene that does not allow me to digest lactose quite as well. So if I'm going to have dairy, I'll consume fermented dairy where the lactose sugars are pre-digested, yogurts and kefirs and things like that, rather than, let's say, milk or pasteurized and homogenized yogurt or any other type of dairy in which the bacteria have been killed because the bacteria helped to digest the lactose in the dairy. Now, the way that I did that, the way that I figured all of that out was I took my 23andMe results, and these are very simple to get via salivary test, and I exported those to a website that gave me a host of information about where I'm at genetically and the way that I personally, not only should be eating, but fascinating enough, even exercising, right? Like whether I should be doing fast and test exercise as my staple or whether I should be doing more endurance-based exercise as a staple. And there are two websites I found that were really good for this. One is called 23andU.com, and the other is called Stratagene. Stratagene is a website run by somebody who I consider to be one of the world's leading people to follow if you really want to look at how to treat your body based on its genetics. His name is Dr. Ben Lynch. He wrote a really good book called Dirty Genes, Dirty Genes, and it walks you through via questionnaires and quizzes how to kind of identify what type of supplements you should be including, what kind of foods you should be avoiding, what kind of foods you should be including, and if you want to take that to the next level and go past his book and kind of the subjective qualitative questionnaires, you can go to his website, you can upload your genetic data, your raw genetic data, and get this big printout of all the different cycles that you're strong in, that you're weak in, and you can really customize your, and what your website diet is with laser again? precision. That website is Stratagene, S-T-R-A-T-A Gene, Stratagene. So yeah, we live in an so, era so where first, dietary customization is So you first have to go to 23andMe, mm-hmm. 23andMe, sign up for that DNA kit to be sent to you, and mm-hmm. then you spit in that vial that they give you, you send it back to them, and all your genetic data will now be available to you on 23andMe. And if you have difficulty dripping your saliva into a tube, here's the trick that I found that works amazingly. Sniff peanut butter. I sniff peanut butter and I start salivating. I'm like Pavlov's dog with peanut butter. So you get out the peanut butter, you sniff the peanut butter, and I I personally just start to drool when I sniff peanut butter. You have a hack for everything. There you go. So speaking about hacks, one of our people watching the live stream posted this question, and this person's name is Magda, and she said, Ben, tell me how to stay young and strong forever. How to stay young? Wow. I would be a billionaire if I could answer that question. Well, let's Uh, keep it to staying young. What are your best tips for slowing down aging? Exactly. We talked about the blue zones, right? Absence of smoking, wild plant intake. We see legume intake. And that doesn't mean you got to go out and have beans with every meal. That That could get a little bit annoying to your housemates or to your family if that were the case, especially if you're me. But the idea is that the reason that legumes work so well, glycemic variability, which I talked about, they're very slow digesting carbohydrate. You know, seeds and nuts can act similarly as can being careful with the times that you eat carbohydrates, et cetera. But the overall picture is you reduce your glycemic variability. You know, time spent outdoors, social life, et cetera. But one of the things that I found through telomere testing, 
took 17 years off of my biological age. I mean, you can test the rate at which your telomeres shorten. And when I first began testing, I was 34. And my biological age, as I was finishing up a career in Ironman triathlon and still hadn't gotten fully onto the caring for my stem cells bandwagon and some of the other things I'll tell you about, I was 37 biologically, 34 chronologically. The next time I tested, I was 35 chronologically and I was 36 biologically. On this last test that I did, I was 37 chronologically and 20 biologically. And the one change that I made was I began to focus with very intense precision on caring for my stem cells. Now, I personally did, and Vision's done something like this too, I did stem cell injections where I actually had my fat cells extracted from my back. Honestly, it's like liposuction. They take a big needle and they stick it in and out of your back. They suck out the fat cells and then they grow them and they extract your stem cells from those. I did the same thing with my bone at a place called Forever Labs in Berkeley where they went in through the bone, they took out bone, they concentrated the stem cells from that. And I actually have the 34-year-old me Stored. So I can re-inject that into my body, into my joints at any given time. But that's an expensive procedure, and I realize that not everybody is going to go out and get foot-long needles shoved into their back and you know anvils shoved into their hips to extract stem cells. You can actually enhance your own endogenous stem cell health and stem cell production. And this returns to Marta's question on longevity by engaging in certain dietary and lifestyle practices that increase your own stem cell production. There are foods that have been proven to allow your body to create more stem cells, and there are foods that you're probably aware of as healthy foods. Blueberries are one. Aloe vera is another. Chlorella is one. Colostrum is one. Coffee berry fruit extract is one. There's a host about, I think it was about four or five months ago, somebody asked a question about increasing their own stem cell production on my podcast, and I gave a full list of things that you can eat to increase your own stem cell production. Another thing, and this kind of returns to the concept that sometimes in life, the things that give you the most bang for your buck are slightly hard and slightly uncomfortable because there's this concept of what is called hormesis. And hormesis is the idea that things that are bad for you in large amounts are actually good for you in small amounts, right? So we could take a cold shower for two to five minutes and feel fantastic. We could take a cold shower for an hour and walk out of there just like cold and shriveled and stressed out. And if you stay in cold for too long, obviously you'll die of hypothermia. We could stay in the sauna for 30 minutes and get this big increase in red blood cell production and heat shock protein and nitric oxide, or we can stay in there for 90 minutes and get a cardiovascular incident from loss of mineral production and basically the body getting to the point where it's so dehydrated the heart doesn't work anymore, right? You can go out in the sunlight and get all this fantastic vitamin D and near-infrared light and far-infrared light and collagen production for your skin and testosterone production and everything that sunlight gives you, and then you could stay out there for two hours, burn yourself to a crisp, and increase your risk of skin cancer, right? They've even shown that the low levels of radiation that we now find around areas like Chernobyl are actually helping some of the rodents there in that area live a longer period of time. Do not say that Ben Greenfield told you to go move next to a <laughs> nuclear disaster waste site. But you get the idea, right? So you subject your body to hormesis, and by subjecting yourself to small amounts of cold, small amounts of heat, small amounts of exercise, which as you learn can kill you in large amounts, but is good for you in small amounts, by exposing your body to wild plants, which are actually stressful to your body. They actually build up these natural defense mechanisms that resist digestion, that cause your body to churn out its own antioxidants. But in insane amounts, right? Not two pounds of kale a day, but a little bit of kale in your morning smoothie 
for example, you actually are subjecting yourself to hormesis. Now, one of the most powerful forms of hormesis that will increase your own endogenous stem cell production and help you to live a longer time. So they might know what it is, slightly uncomfortable, but it's one of the best things you can do. And an enormous number and a growing body of research has shown this to be one of the best things you can do for your longevity and your health. Fasting. So the researcher Walter Longo has shown that two to four times per year, an extended five-day fast moves the dial the best. Now, I know that that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. I'm personally a foodie. It's complete torture for me to go five days without food. Ease yourself into it. Don't think that you need to go five days without food. The magic number of hours at which things like cellular turnover, what's called cellular autophagy, a programmed cell death, stem cell production, et cetera, kicks in, it's at about the 16-hour mark. So this idea of giving yourself about a 12 to 16-hour window each day in which you're fasting is a very smart move. Now, what I do, and I've found this to be very sustainable for myself and for the people I work with, 12 to 16 hours I go without eating. So this means if I finish dinner at, say, 9 p.m., I'll go until at least 9 a.m. without eating. And if I have the capability to do so and I'm not, you know, if I'm traveling in an area and I'm at a fantastic hotel with a wonderful buffet, I'm not going to, you know, bite my finger and walk past it. I'll go enjoy life and go eat food, but I'll wait at least 12 hours before doing so. In many situations, and especially if I want to improve my cognitive performance or if dinner's been especially large, I'll wait 16 hours to eat, right? So if I'll finish dinner at 9 p.m. and I won't eat again until 1 or 2 p.m. for lunch. In addition to that, a single 24-hour fast once every one to two weeks can really help to move the dial as well. And that's typically a dinner-to-dinner -dinner fast, meaning you finish dinner on, let's say, a Saturday night, and then you just don't eat again until Sunday at dinner. Here's the biggest mistake and people then, make. Just to go deeper, go ahead. when you say you just don't eat again, I know there are certain things which are okay. Water is okay. Coffee is okay. What is okay in that 24-hour fast? This is going to absolutely blow you away. Anything that doesn't have calories. Anything that doesn't have calories. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Like, oh, can I have my coffee with the stick of butter in it? Or can I have my fish oil supplement? Or, you know, can I have bone broth? Well, all of those things technically have calories. Your body has to tap into those and kind of reset the cycle and everything before it gets back into a fasting mode. Now, those things won't spike blood glucose. They're not going to result in completely ripping you out of, let's say, a ketogenic state or some of the other favorable states that occur when you're fasting. But they strip away your body's ability to be able to get some of those stem cell and longevity benefits of fasting. So water's okay. Some sea salt and minerals are okay. Supplements that don't have a lot of calories in them, right? Like a multivitamin complex, things like that. Those are all okay. But what you'd want to stay away from is anything that has actual calories in it. So just to give a practical example, I went for dinner with Ben and we finished our meal at 9 p.m. And because it was a heavy meal, it was at a restaurant here. Now we ate like beasts. We finished our meal this at 9 p.m. This guy can put it away, by the way. And then, with Ben's advice, I simply skipped breakfast. And my next meal, my next calorie intake was at 1 p.m. That's a 16-hour fast. Now, when I did that, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be going on stage. I'm going to feel hungry. I get hangry, hungry and angry when I'm hungry. I'm going to start yelling at people. But what I actually found was pretty interesting. Firstly, I forgot I skipped breakfast. I was slightly hungry towards lunch, but I had the same amount of energy, the same amount of cognitive functioning throughout that day. 
Yeah. Well, you'll find even if you do this 24-hour fast, is about 2 p.m. you get hangry, right? You want to bite somebody's head off if they bug you, and you start, you know, dreaming about roasted chickens running around in your head when you close your eyes. And then what happens is your body begins to shift into what is called ketosis. You start to produce these ketone bodies as your body taps into its own fat. And the more frequently you fast, the more fast and painless this transition becomes. And once you make it through that window, all of a sudden you're not hungry, right? And the other thing that I'll do on my 24-hour fasting day is I choose activities that keep my mind occupied, right? Because a lot of times food is equated with boredom. So I won't go out to lunch with people. I'll make sure I've got an article to work on and I've got some other things to do and I have a hike to go on and I have all sorts of things to do to keep my mind off of food. Now, one thing, and this winds up hurting a lot of people, especially lean people or people who are very physically active. Do not think that intermittent fasting or 24-hour calorie restriction is synonymous with eating fewer calories. If you're trying to lose weight, the whole calories in, calories out equation dictates that at a certain point, you just gotta stop stuffing more calories in your mouth so you tap into your own fat as a fuel. But the benefits of fasting don't come with caloric restriction. They come with a long period of time spent between eating. So this means that if you decide, hey, I'm gonna take Ben's advice and every week I'm gonna do a 24-hour fast from Saturday dinner until Sunday dinner, Plan a big, fantastic family feast on Sunday night. Or go to your favorite restaurant and eat a bunch of amazing, wonderful food on Sunday night. You know, sometimes I'll fast for 24 hours, Saturday dinner to Sunday dinner, and eat 2,500 calories for dinner on Sunday night. Right? So the idea is not calorie restriction, again, unless weight loss is your primary goal. But if it's longevity that's your goal, it's the idea that you simply engage in periods of calorie restriction without necessarily lowering the number of calories that you eat for that 24-hour cycle. So Ben, you wrote a white paper called Look Good Naked, and you have a quest coming up with Mind Valley, which is essentially on having a great body, looking good, and living longer. What would be your best tips for staying lean, especially for men, for having a healthy body fat percentage, and for having good musculature? I tapped into this strategy when I was preparing for Ironman triathlon. I used to be a 215-pound bodybuilder. So for me, it wasn't fat. It was muscle that I stripped off my body. I stripped off 40 pounds of muscle. But then I maintained very, very lean physiology without necessarily doing as much exercise as a lot of my peers were doing. And I still maintain this habit to this day, nearly 365 days a year. You are already all educated pretty much as to why this strategy works. So... You wake up in the morning in an intermittent fasted state. So your body is a little bit deprived of its storage carbohydrate. It's ready to burn its own fat as a fuel. You've fasted for 12 to 16 hours when you wake up. At that point, you put a little bit of caffeine into your system. Like I mentioned, coffee is great at dumping some cortisol, but it also amps up your fatty acid burning. Green tea also works. Anything that's caffeine-based gives you a slight edge when it comes to your metabolic rate. Now, if caffeine isn't your thing, there are some other herbs and supplements that can help. Two, for example, would be a cayenne pepper-based herb or bitter melon extract. Either of these can achieve a similar effect in terms of shifting your body into a little bit more fatty acid utilization. So you've woken up 12 to 16 hour intermittent fast, you put some kind of supplement into your system that's going to shove you into a little bit of extra fat burning, and then you do that simple 20 to 30 minutes of very easy aerobic physical activity in a simple conversational aerobic zone. You're not stressing your body out when you do this. 
you're not finishing it up and feeling as though you got to go eat a couple of waffles with almond butter on them for breakfast and pat yourself on the back because you did this hard CrossFit wad in the morning and you're stressed out anyway so you want to eat. You also don't put yourself into a situation where, and this is very common based on human psychology, I worked out really hard this morning so I'm going to sit for four hours at work. Right. Instead, it's a very easy session. So you're still motivated to stay active while you're at work. You're not super stressed out, but you're tapping into your own fats as a fuel. So you're fasted. You've got something in your system to increase the amount of fats that you burn. You move for 20 to 30 minutes, and then you finish that up with two to five minutes of cold exposure. A two to five minute cold shower, or maybe jumping in the river that's beside the walking path that you walk on, or anything else that exposes your body to cold. And then you finish up, and you go along, and you start your day, and you know, depending on the scenario that you're in, based on what we were just talking about with fasting, maybe you're having breakfast afterwards, maybe you're not, doesn't matter, because you didn't do a super hard workout that morning anyways. And I swear, that routine, when you perform it regularly, and you make that a part of your habit, a part of your ritual, and that's the way that I stay pretty lean year-round, that works fantastically. That's phenomenal. And where does food come in? The basic idea is pretty much what I've harped on already. Reduce glycemic variability by ensuring that when you eat carbohydrates, your body is very responsive to them from a glucose standpoint. You've exercised before, you're walking afterwards, you're being careful with how high of a glycemic index those carbohydrates have. So you limit the amount of times that your blood glucose goes up and down during the day and you limit inflammation. You do those two things and you're gonna equip your fat cells to be converted into muscle tissue and also to die a horrible, painful early death. And so, one of our last questions. This is from Verena Demet. So Verena asks, what do you think is the best way to keep yourself motivated to continue along this path? Mm. There's the idea of extrinsic motivation and public embarrassment for not achieving your goals. I'm actually a fan of that versus intrinsic motivation. I'm just going to try really hard and make this happen. There's a fantastic new book by author Benjamin Hardy called Willpower Doesn't Work. And that book is probably one of the better ones that I've read in terms of altering your personal environment to keep you more motivated. Meaning, if you walk into my office, there are kettlebells littered across the floor, there's a pull-up bar there in the door of the office, there's special fun things that I can stand on that make me want to stand during the day, there's even a walking treadmill, right? I've hacked my environment to provide me with some of that intrinsic motivation for staying fit throughout the day. So to radically change your habits, you need to radically change your environment, and that's also a fantastic way to keep yourself motivated. Just change your environment, and that can, of course, extend to your pantry, your refrigerator, etc. Now, the second part of that is the extrinsic motivation piece. And I've found that I and anybody I speak with who is heavily motivated to move, to stay physically active, to eat healthy, etc., they're signed up for something. Sometimes it can simply be something as simple as a quest in which you're held accountable to a community and held accountable to a daily schedule that you're adhering to because it's written down and human psychology is that we want to check things off. We want to achieve them. But I also like to encourage people to sign up for events, right? I always have something on the schedule. I always know 12 months from now, I got to travel to Iceland to do a Spartan race, or four weeks from now, I am signed up for my local community 5K that I already registered and paid my $30 for, right? Like, I always have something on the schedule that I can look forward to that provides me with, in addition to my intrinsic motivation, the environment I've created for myself, extrinsic motivation, 
fear of public embarrassment, knowing that all my friends I told on Facebook that I was going to go do this, you know, this 5K or this marathon or, you know, pick your poison. I've held myself to it because I've told the world, hey, look, I've committed myself to this. So that's what I do. Fantastic, guys. Please give a big round of applause to biohacker Ben Greenfield. Thanks, Thanks. Ben. Thanks, Christian. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.